Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, an introduction to Latinx communities and how to support them. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Pesimio, and delighted to have with me Cesar Ramirez. And yes, thank you for joining me. And how are you doing today? I'm doing so good. Thank you very much, Reese. How about yourself? I'm I'm okay. I remembered to hit record, so I'm feeling pretty on top of things. Would you do the honors of saying a little bit about yourself and what's your corner of the counseling world and things like that? Yes, thank you very much. See, my name is Cesar Ramirez. I am a Hispanic male who graduated from Multnomah University in 2018, and uh, I work specifically in a culturally specific Latinx program. And it's been a pleasure being able to use my language with the clients that we work with. Uh, we work with a specific population dealing with CSPMI and higher levels of care that are dealing with mental health and substance use issues. Um, I, re- I personally enjoy working with clients dealing with intense issues from trauma, uh, racial disparities, everything in in between. So it's been a pleasure. I use my language in a regular basis, and I love it. That sounds really delightful. Um, What's one of your favorite parts about what you do? Yes. So, you know, as uh, coming into the field of counseling, I always wanted to give back to my community and be able to to provide support, guidance, and be able to use the gifts God has given me. And I get the opportunity to work with so many people coming in for so many different issues and being able to do things at a, such a personal level. It's given me such a great joy to to walk with people through their depression and see them flourish and, and be well, develop coping skills and be successful in their life. And one of the things with the Latino community is that it becomes very centered on family uh, connection. So this job gives me a direct access to, to working with our population and then encouraging the 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 return the return the la palabra the voice right for people to come back to services and giving them good quality care so it it gives me a direct experience and an ability to to serve our community here locally and that just that's a great experience and a in a fulfilling um, feeling in general yeah that does sound really f- fulfilling and there's something that you mentioned that. I don't know that I've heard that as often among more um, majority counselors, like uh, more white counselors, that this idea of I have I come from a specific community and I get to give back to it. Uh, I get, well, at, at, least, at least for my own self, I think I am so, I identify as so like mainstream whitish that like I don't have a very strong connection to like a particular affinity group. And so uh, in essence, and so... There's more just a sense of I'm just like kind of giving out to like whoever, um, but I think I hear you talking about like having that really strong sense of belonging and connection, and there being a lot of meaning in 
specifically contributing to to your own community yeah absolutely i think it, you speak to it specifically and i think you know when we talk about hispanic and latinx uh this is a very diverse you know population there there's many people that come from different regions from mexico puerto rico cuban central america south america that have specific customs and different subgroups and the the amazing thing here is that yes spanish is the the common language but a lot of these communities also bring different dialects, different customs, and it's also really important to to provide good quality of care, but this speaks to the clinician being prepared and understanding who they're working with, understanding cultural issues, uh, dynamics, politics, customs, simple things from greeting, simple things from looking in the eyes, and understanding that population it has been really fulfilling because we work with so many different people coming in. And you get to also experience a little bit about their world from their lens, which is the, the amazing thing about working with Latinx population. That sounds really exciting. And again, a very integral part of what we do, absolutely, to try to see the world through the lens of the other person. And um, being able to do that, not just with uh, someone of your own of your own culture, but, but understanding a whole other culture and or exploring a whole other culture in this encounter. Uh, that does sound super rich and dynamic. Um, I, have a, I have a couple uh, terminology questions just for clarification for, for me, for the listener. So um, in in the words you've used, so A, uh, what is what, what is Latinx compared to Latino, Latina? Uh, and what is the difference between uh, Latinx and Hispanic? And when is it appropriate to use one or the other, would you say? Yeah, so this is a really good question. So identity and culture for members of Hispanic and Latinx community is a complex and rich history of trajectory of population, right? So when we hear the Latino or Latina, or now we hear Latinx, this is including uh, Latino is for a male, Latina is for a female, right? And what we don't want to do, we don't want to put somebody in that category. We want people to be respected and choose. So the Latinx takes that away. It's not gender binary. It gives you the opportunity to say, I'm a Latinx. I identify myself with one of these specific subgroups. And one of the things here about the identity construct is that many of the Latinos and Latinas and uh, Hispanics and Latinx, there's so many different words that can be so confusing. So for example, there's some people that will say, I'm Hispanic, and they will connect more with their Spanish roots from Spain. And there's people that will say, no, I'm Chicano. And it, you hear Chicano. What does Chicano mean? Well, Chicano means somebody who was born in the U.S. that has first native Spanish-speaking parents, and they were born into more of an American mixed culture, so Chicano. So you hear all these different terms, and it can be very confusing. But when we hear Latinx, it's being able to bring everyone together without specifically identifying where you're from. You, you're saying, I'm from Latino America. I'm from South America, and it brings everybody into that scope of that lens. I see. Yes. So, so in say, if I were to identify as Latinx, I would be identifying as a as a Spanish speaker from from one of the Spanish speaking cultures, not but not identifying specifically which one, and neither identifying specifically as male or female. Um, whereas, if I identified as Hispanic, as Chicano, as Mexicano. I'd be identifying with a specific with it from a specific point of origin. Absolutely, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Yes, 
Uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And again, I mean, hu- huge detail. I mean, because uh, I mean, even details like being be, being Mexican uh, growing up in Mexico versus Mexican growing up in Texas. I mean, there's you know, I imagine there's huge differences in emphasis there, and like uh, shared language, some shared customs, but a lot of differences as well. So. Yeah, that, nothing's to be taken for granted. I think that's a that's a really good example. I, we hear a lot of people that are you know that are typically first generation or have a stronger connection, a lot of the times more to the roots, more to the customs, more to the food, than second and third and fourth generation. So there's a lot of people that will say, well, when I talk to your parents, they'll they'll say that they're they're Cubano or they're Puerto Ricano or they're from El Salvador, but when I speak to you and your kids. They say, well, I'm American, and yes, those are f- part of my roots, but they're, they might not be as connected. And, and this is all fluid. Some people are very connected to the roots in their third or fourth or fifth generation. But typically what we see is a lot of the first and second generation have a specific more uh, connection to where they're from, Puerto Rico, Honduras, El Salvador, and they will mention that. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I soy de Honduras, right? But the Latinx is beautiful because it's giving the person to to identify what's best for them, what's most comfortable. And that feels, A, just really respectful in general, but also very congruent with what we try to do in the counseling environment, where we try to be you know, person-centered, very individual, um, have individualized service plans, and uh, yeah, really let the person identify who they are, and we meet them where they're at, and we, we try to take them where, where they want to go. Um, and that's just a general principle of our field anyway. And so here's, here's some very culturally specific ways to do that. Uh, that is really beautiful. Uh, out of all of the, uh, the cultural labels we just mentioned, um, how, do you, how do you most identify? Yeah, I identify as Latinx. Um, and if I speak to somebody who, who's really asking where I'm from, that's really important. I, I'm vulnerable and I'm, I'm transparent. I'll let them know. See, I'm so Mexicano, I'm Mexican, and I'll let them know where I'm from. And this is something that's that's interesting because a lot of the times as a clinician, we, we, we definitely think about self-disclosure and, and if it's appropriate and why it's appropriate. When working with a lot of our Latino community, being able to identify where you're from brings a sense of relief because they're testing to see if you know culture, if you know the history, and this is important. So, yes, when I identify, I say, uh, my name is Cesar, um, I identify as Latinx, Hispanic male, and uh that also brings a, a sense of relief because they, they hear the Hispanic, and that's a common term. The Latinx is a new one, right? So this is something that's coming new. So a lot of our, our traditional folks will, will question about the, the Latinx. What is this? And we, do, we provide some education on that as well. And it makes sense, too, that uh, the, uh, the, the classical training we get around disclosure in school, the uh, you know, don't ever disclose uh, that training, it, it does seem like that needs to soften a lot. And in, in, I discovered that that softens a lot in a lot of cases, but in particularly in your case where it's your it's an in culture thing, and so you disclosing your or your point of origin would be uh, would have high therapeutic value um, in in a lot of your cases. So it's, it's a good point. Well, thank to, you to be there. So then, um, in your yeah, in your own experience as a Latinx Hispanic male, um, what's been a time when you were able to access the care, the resources that that she needed, and like what were some things that made that a good experience for you? Yeah, I think you know, as a clinician working with the Latinx population, it's really important for me to be aware of of the resources that are available, and and this this speaks to the clinician's preparedness, being prepared. 
And the, the, the successful part has been we have a diligent case manager who, who does a lot of the, the homework for us, and, and we work alongside him, and we, we identify these resources. So when we're looking for mental health services or substance services, if they're looking outside to a specific location, we find services that are obviously Spanish, monolingual, or bilingual. If we're looking for medical services, we, we also, before referring, we do our homework to find out providers that speak the language, that are culturally sensitive and uh, provide that humility, right? It's really important for them. But also being informed of where we're referring, is a, it's a really important part because our community will go off of what that experience was. And if they feel like that first contact was, was not taken the best way or they, they didn't feel heard or valued or respected, they won't return. And word of mouth runs very, very deep and cuts very big in the, in the Latinx population. So in, in finding community services and resources, it's how to do our very best in making sure that we, we connect, we make alliances and build community. So when we refer, we know who we're referring to. You know, if I were referring to Reese, I'd say, hey, Reese is somebody who works with the community. He understands the language. He will understand you. He will be respectful. He will be transparent and judgmental. And this brings us a defensiveness and brings a sense of ease and comfort. So in making the connections, those are the points, making sure that we know where we're connecting, we're aware of the resources that are provided, and we're also doing a warm handoff. This has been a successful effort. That warm handoff is a, a really crucial piece, especially, especially, I mean, especially if you're walking into uh, the service agency, walking up to a professional you've never met, and especially with somebody who, like, I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, it's, it's very much out of my experience to, like, seek services, like, not in my home country, but I can imagine that just being really, really daunting. And so having having a word-of-mouth referral, having a warm handoff, having, like, some sort of in-person connection, I can imagine that just being so assuring and comforting and really important. Yeah, I just wanted to just mention that a lot of the, the barriers to mental health health care for the Latinx community is it's... In general, it, it's it's similar to the disparities that, that we see in a regular basis, but the difference is this, it's the access and quality of treatment that we that we see the difference, you know. The NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Health Illness, they 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 mention that approximately thirty-four percent of Hispanic or Latinx adults with mental illness receive treatment each year compared to the average forty-five percent of Caucasian and white. So the, the specific issues that come to mind are, the, these are the barriers that we see. And the first one that comes to mind here is the language barrier. Language barriers. Um, you know, it's a new country being here and, and having to bring forward really sensitive or personal things is a challenge already. And not being able to dominate the language provides a second uh, milestone, a second challenge, right? And then poverty and less health, inc ins you know, not having health insurance coverage, right? Poverty and not having coverage is another issue that's really come up, you know. And then lack of cultural competence, uh, misdiagnosis or overdiagnosing somebody, legal status, documentation status, uh, acculturation. Older adults usually won't seek the services because they know of the services, Stigma. Stigma is a huge one for our Latinx population and a lot of psychoeducation and a lot of building trust and rapport. And then COVID-19 brings its own challenges to the table, right? What, 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 what's this COVID thing you're talking about? And what are the, what are the, what, I've never heard of this thing. 
Yes, yes. Let me tell Sorry, you more about this COVID. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so with this whole COVID no, stuff. No, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I've heard enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do tell. Me. Uh, you know the the challenges with uh, the the challenges that we've seen at our clinic and many other providers who provide culturally sensitive services have been the, the the access to to treatment. Right. I mean, COVID. You want to take the necessary precautions. It went from being a direct contact. And this is something that speaks very, very, very to the heart of the Latinx population. You know, there's there's a sense of community, a sense of relationship that's very important. When um, a client or a prospective client is coming into services, knowing who that person is, knowing a little bit about them brings a sense of relief. And when you take that away and you do it through a telehealth system, whether it's phone conferencing or video it, dis- it, it disconnects the contact and the presence. And, it, and this has been a specific barrier that we've noticed that in the beginning, there was a lot of people that didn't really seek the services. We noticed a, a significant drop in visits. But within probably within two to three months afterwards, we started noticing that a lot of the, the clients started returning back to the services. And we think that maybe the what we've heard has been Prefiero tener conexión que no conexión, which is I would rather be connected than disconnected. And we echoed that message. It's it's better to have a a connection with somebody, whether it's a some form of telehealth, than not being able to to have anybody, especially being sheltered, being alone, or not knowing the resources. So we've seen uh, an uppity up. We've seen some positives back again with. Um, meeting their, making their appointments, being receptive to the telehealth, something that was a, a significant challenge in the beginning. That was a significant challenge and like a huge, huge adjustment for everybody. And, um, and I can imagine even more so for, for people who like instinctively, intuitively, culturally, that like, you know, prefer the, the in-person uh, contact is especially huge. So, so I do find that as, um, as the, uh, these Latinx folks there, they're, they're not preferring, you know, digital connection to no connection. Do you find that they would be inclined to seek in-person services if they were available? Or are they, um, are they preferring, are they preferring online now? Or like if, like if, a, if, a, if a suitable provider was providing in-person services, would, do you think they'd take them up on that? Yeah, this is a really good question. I think this is, you know, um, it, it's really depending of the, of the person, but the consensus of what we've heard is, a lot of people are now feeling very comfortable with doing telehealth because of the safety of, of avoiding the risk, right? Um, we've provided some clients the option of being back again in contact within the, you know, respecting the six feet and using the mask and the protective PP, PPE. But we've also had a huge influence of people mentioning, I feel comfortable uh, having my conversation, my therapy sessions uh, through the phone or through, you know, through Zoom or, or Teams or whatever platform you have available and it's been a mixture a lot of our our older folks our elderly population more of the first generation second generation have have been very vocal about returning they've mentioned i really want to return i want to get back to that connection but part of the educational piece here is for the population is vulnerable and they have medical or you know substance use that puts them at a level of higher risk we also educate them letting them know about that ex- potential exposure on that and that effect. 
that it could have on the oh, it's been a very positive we're hearing a very positive response of people being receptive to in-person or telehealth services which is great and i'm also hearing a lot of this for the medical field a lot of providers are saying that they're going to stick with it hopefully once we get past this COVID 19. that seems like a, a much more balanced approach than i mean how it was at the first to be able to say here's some options here's some information uh you're an adult we'll, we'll you know, give you give you the info, give you the information so you can make informed consent, but then have the capacity to, to meet you and what you're willing to do. That does seem very balanced. Going back to so as we're talking about uh, barriers that Latinx and Hispanic peoples face in in reaching out for services, uh, you'd mentioned stigmas in particular, uh, and I would I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what some of the, sort of those common stigmas still are or. What are some common you know, microaggressions that, um, like, like a white person like me, might be vulnerable to making? Yeah. So, in in hearing you, Reese, the the microaggressions um, that we often hear is, where are you from? Uh, were you born here? Wow, you speak good English. We also hear, you're 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 a credit to your race. You know that. You are so articulate. Can I ask you for help with a with a recipe and uh, a salsa, or can I ask you for assistance on a specific clothing that's authentic? Um, when we hear the color blindness, right? When I look at you, I don't see color. Um, when we talk about racial disparities, America's a melting pot. Uh, when we talk about issues with the black or Hispanic population we often hear there's only one race the human race uh when we talk about criminality and assumption of criminal status well the microaggressions that we often hear is uh, when you go to a store somebody's following you or they'll ask you if you're going to purchase that if you are walking on a sidewalk and there's somebody who uh, is a white man or white woman, they'll clench their purse or they'll make a, a visible display of, of, of concern or they'll move to the other side of the, of the sidewalk. You know, this is sending out a message. Um, when we hear the denial of the individual racism, we hear statements like, I'm not racist. I have several black or Hispanic friends or Mexican friends. Um, when we often hear as a woman, I, I know exactly what you're going through as a racial minority. When we, we, we often also hear uh, certain things that, that just really talks to, you know, Hispanic men typically are more aggressive or they're more violent or you're more prone. Typically, you're going to be more prone to, to drinking or substances. These microaggressions are something that is very visible. It's very visible and it's often heard. I, don't, I've, I hear them often as a clinician myself, and when I'm out in the community, I, I hear my clients mention these microaggressions and the impact that it has on their self-esteem, the impact that it has on their mental health, the impact that they feel disconnected with the community. Yeah, some of those sound, I mean, I was starting to feel sick to my stomach thinking about some of those, and they just, I don't know, like the blatant, they just feel very blatant and brazen and... Uh, like how can you see how can you see people this way? Um, but I, but I guess that there there's if I mean if we're gonna look for like a, an attitude or pattern in there it, it is kind of that um, that othering uh, attitude that we talk about. Like I'll see somebody who's a little bit different than me and I'll see them instinctively as as other as 
as as alien as exotic. Um, and I guess there's a fine balance because I mean they they they, they are different, and there's a way that we we do need to see see that difference and recognize the difference to be able to recognize hey they have a different experience and I need and I need to account for that, but. Uh, but not so different that I that they're also like inferior. Maybe maybe that maybe that's the thing I'm I'm, I'm feeling more in the list of microaggressions you mentioned. It's it's there's a bit of an othering and there's very much the um, oh you're this exotic thing you're less than me in some way or you you exist kind of for my my uh, sensationalism and uh, you know you you you're you're an entertainment novelty to me or, or something rather than just like a, a different person that is unequal standing with me. Yeah, I think you speak to those exactly. I think you 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 definitely touch those the, the discomfort that it brings and it's really important to recognize differences. This is important. This is about awareness and this is how we learn. We learn to being being observant and being able to recognize how things are and what they seem is important, but also being aware of the language that we're using, right? Using the trauma informed. And most people that I that I that I come across that are Latino, Latinx that are Hispanic that identify a certain way, they'll, they'll mention, you know what, I, I'd rather have a direct question asked of like, hey, I'm not sure how would you say this or what would be most comfortable because you're asking the person for that preference. You're asking them what feels best to them, not assuming. It's when we assume and then we come back with that, that it, it puts people at a, at, a, at a defensive stance, right? Absolutely. And yeah, a direct question asked, you know, gently and kindly, can be really empowering because you know you get to say specifically what you need, and they get to know whatever they need to know, and it seems a lot uh, a lot more reliable than uh, making guesses based on uh, all the stuff you think you know. In thinking about uh, barriers to service, there was a particular one you'd mentioned, Cesar, um, around uh, fear of seeking assistance from the government, um, or uh, and 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 that experience. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what that is and how we should be aware of that. Yeah, this is a big one. This is a big one. So we have um, a huge population, whether they're documented or not. There's a, there's just a huge stigma of if if you if you seek government services, you're later going to be targeted or you're going to have to pay it back or for a lot of folks that are undocumented there's there's a thing called the public charge right and this public charge has brought a huge cloud of of concern of what public charge is what does that mean and public charge means is if you're using any of the a specific government assistance, um, you you could be hindered in your legal process, in your legal stance, right? If you're applying for an asylum, if you're doing uh, an, an I-95, if you're doing an immigration petition, this could be used against you. But what a lot of people don't know is that there's there's updates to this, right? There's a new administration that's put out specific guidelines regarding um, COVID-19 and the treatment does not count for public for public charge or testing or or seeking assistance for that your most immigrants are not going to be put on the public charge because they qualify for certain things so a lot of the things that bring up to, that we need to bring to the table is educating the the individual letting them know what public charge is what it, it what it isn't and what it won't affect because a lot of people will say i i want to receive mental health services or i want to treat my addiction but the thing is this 
how is that information going to be used? Is that going to affect my legal status? Or if I'm documented already, is this going to affect my citizenship? Or is this going to be or how how is this stuff going to be controlled or, or distributed? Or is my provider going to know? Is this going to later on affect my daughter or my son's you know academic history or future? And it's really important to to provide education because this this fear of seeking services because of the your documentation status or specifically your race is a real big issue for most medical and Latinx and most just in general providers that are providing specific service. That makes sense that there those fears would be there because it sounds like in in the past I mean some of those concerns have been maybe more out in the open and had more uh, more felt consequences. So then recognizing that as a fear that many Latinx uh, individuals have, uh, how would you say is the, would be the best way to support them in that fear? You know, is it just you know, saying, oh, well, here's some new data for you and you know, just kind of change your belief? Or is it more uh, like an empathy approach? Or, or what, what would you say would be most helpful for these folks? Yeah, I think using an empathetic approach is the beginning, right? We got we to gotta speak with, with kindness and we got to be gentle with our words, but also... Providing them the education. I think here the, the Latinx population, like most people, we, we appreciate knowledge. We appreciate having the facts. And providing the prospective client or the client the facts is going to bring them ease and it's going to help them understand what it is that they're, what they're looking at, right? So we're reality testing here. We're also helping them dispute their, their thinking patterns. We're, we're supporting them recognize maladaptive thoughts. And a lot of the times there's misinformation out there, right? You turn on the you're specifically being fed a lot of information, a lot of data, and that information might be incorrect. And that person might take with it and share it and share it, and it, it takes them further away. So as a professional, what we can do is providing them love, care, affection, and providing them education, and then providing them the support to choose, right, that autonomy to choose. But usually we found that once we provide the, the we create a good foundation of of supporting them, hearing them, educating them. Then they feel comfortable seeking services, understanding what they're getting into, recognizing the limitations, recognizing confidentiality. This is a really big thing. A lot of people that are Latin that identify in the Latinx community, I hear a lot of questions of Cesar. I want to go into services. However, I am concerned because I've never disclosed this information. How is this going to be shared? Is my brother-in-law or my sister or my spouse or my partner, if they call, how will this be shared? And I don't want nobody to know this. And it's really important for us to recognize that concern and also return with that 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 confidence of saying this is this is how we hold confidentiality. This is how your information is going to be respected. I hear that. Uh, I think if I'm if I'm following the the emphasis you're you're making is that relationships are huge. And being able to establish a trusting, empathetic, connected relationship where there is, where there where there is that understanding, you know, that the provider is working to really, you know, meet the person, approach them, and get get to know them them in their culture. When there's that uh, relationship context, uh, then information that's shared, education that happens, it sounds like there there's more of a receptiveness to that. Um, and then I guess I'm I'm thinking of, in contrast to a situation where maybe there isn't. A lot of effort put into the relationship there's just effort put into like the education which i imagine could feel kind of condescending in a way or kind of uh 
kind of kind of brutal and just you know, be like, well, I'm like feeling vulnerable and I'm seeking help, and all you're doing is like you know telling me how I'm wrong, but you're telling me all of this information. I mean, that doesn't build comfort or build trust. Um, but but if you take the but if you take the time to get to know me first and show me that you care, then I'll probably be much more open to to what you have to say, and then get to benefit from like having my own paradigms updated and everything. Yes, yes, yes. We often hear that, you know, in, in our in our field of counseling, that the relationship is one of them. It's it's the it's the cornerstone of our of our study of our field, and you can have the best modalities, therapeutic modalities that you have, and you're effective in using. But if you don't have that trust in that relationship, it could be it could be very detrimental for the longevity of that client engaging and being productive and being active in their treatment. So. Yes, being being able to to respect the client, being able to have a space for them to be vocal and honest and transparent and listening to them, and also providing constructive and supportive assistance, it, it's 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 visible, right? El amor se mira con nuestro comportamiento. Love is displayed with our actions, right? And and this is one of the things that we we often forget. Eighty-five percent of communication is is communicated non-verbally. 15% is ver- verbally, so we have to be very careful of what is our body communicating. How are we communicating trust? Is our posture open? How is our eyes? What are what are our gestures? And our, pe- our people look at this. So it's very important that our language, our behavioral language, our language of our body is speaking to, to what that person needs to see in that day and hear that day. Absolutely. I've heard that I've heard that statistic. I mean, I think yours is generous. I'd heard that it's actually like like seven percent. That's the the words that we say, and everything else is like the body, the tone of voice, the the non the non the paraverbals, and everything. Uh, but uh, but yeah, there's uh, every everything everything about you is always communicating, and uh, the things you don't say are usually more believable. So uh, every, everybody take note. Um, so uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Cesar. As we, we talked about some some barriers that um, people face in seeking services. I mean, everything from uh, language to fears of what will happen to this information to um, not connecting with the culture, the stigma, and everything. Uh, we've been able to talk about some attitudes that a clinician should adopt i mean especially a, a non-latinx clinician should adopt you know being aware of microaggressions not not othering but still seeing the difference and you know prioritizing the, the relationship things like that uh are there any specific things that clinicians can do to address things like like language barriers or, or lack of health coverage or or like I guess here I'm venturing into like the you know social justice activism realm. Like, are there specific helpful things that people can do? Um, yeah, I think you know I think you you touched on them already. Being aware of specific systemic issues is important. Like if you're going to be working with any population, it'd be it'd be wise and it'd be helpful to to know what's going on with that community. Um, the the big one is working with the Latinx population. Um, we are, we are known to, to communicate how we feel with describing things in our body. An example is phrases like, me duele el corazón. While this literally means my heart hurts, it's an expression of an emotional distress, right? My, it's not saying my chest hurts. It's saying, me duele el corazón. I, I'm feeling ill, 
I'm feeling ill, but I'm feeling ill because of a, maybe a depression or a trauma. So it's also being able to recognize specific language and recognizing that. Sometimes we'll hear, um, no puedo dormir bien, I can't sleep well. And it might be like, oh, you're dealing with insomnia. It's like, mm, yes, but what's the underlying, right? So it's really important to always ask, what else is going on? What else is going on when we're talking about mental health, right? But things that are important for a provider to know, it's it, who, who do you consider to be part of your family? Who is part of that nucleus? Who is part of that support system? Because a lot of the times uh, it, it is family, but it's also amigos, your friends. And it, it might be a lot of people will say my, my familia is, is my relationship with Christ or my spiritual belief with nature. And this is really important because sometimes we miss these things that are really, these are strength-based factors, right? These are protective factors. Um, understanding, obviously doing good, good ethical work of exploring what are risk factors because a lot of times we'll focus on, you know, SI, homicidal ideation, uh, you know, if there's barriers with, with substance use. But there's also other, other factors, right, uh, historical trauma in the family. Has there, has there been childhood losses, right? These things right here play a big role. There's a lot of people that will come to services saying, I'm coming to services not because there's anything really going on with me right now, but I haven't dealt with losing my brother when I was 10 years old, and I'm noticing that that's what's triggering, you know, frustrations or disconnections with my own kid or frustrations with somebody else. So it's really understanding that, understanding what are other factors that this person is dealing with, this individual is dealing with. And I think as a provider, in short, you know, recognizing the stigmas, recognizing cultural competence, right, in, in ourselves and not misdiagnosing, recognizing, right, the socioeconomic status, because this will tell us a lot. If, if we have clients that are dealing with a, they, they're dealing with a lot of poverty, we might have an agenda of addressing this specific assignment, but we also need to be really aware of when was the last time this individual ate? Do they have access to food or clean or, or you know, drinkable water? Do, are they in a place that's safe? The Maslow hierarchy, hierarchy of needs needs to be very much in the forefront, we're working with the Latinx population. Uh, language barriers and and ability to comprehend language and their own in their own language, right? So we have a lot of people that um, that are that could speak the language but don't know how to read and write it. And this is something that's really important, providing them that education. And then just other 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 components that I mentioned that I really want to just highlight is that misdiagnosing. A lot of the times. Uh, I'll give you an example. Somebody, I had a medical provider who said, Cesar, can I speak to you? I have a concern, and I just wanted to see if, I, if we could share some thoughts. And I said, sure. And she said, I'm with somebody who I believe has schizophrenia because they're mentioning to me, I'm hearing voices in my head. That I'm and he's saying, I have schizophrenia. I said, I'd be more than happy to support. So I this individual, and he said, yeah, you know, what's going on is that um, – what was going through my mind is why didn't I seek a different treatment, right? Why didn't I did? Why didn't I, I'm, I take action ahead of time? Why did I wait? So I'm just these are self thoughts, right? Self reproaching thoughts, but they weren't voices like what the provider was thinking. So I said the diagnosis wouldn't be appropriate because of this, this, and I provided the cultural lens, and it was very educational, and this is really important because misdiagnosing somebody for a schizophrenia when it's something completely different, that's pretty far off, and we need to be very careful with that.
I think we need to be really careful with that and uh, be really careful about like over pathologizing things that are not pathology. Like, um, I mean, I mean that, that specific example is a really great one too, but I'm thinking too, I mean, you'd mentioned people who say they, they, they feel a, a strong communion with nature or their, their spiritual life is really important and they, and they interact with you, know, with, with God, with angels, with saints and, uh, and and I could imagine that being written off as like oh there that that's a delusion or that's like ungrounded or that's just fantastical. Whereas for that person, that's like you know, hugely uh, integral to their spiritual being and to to their lives. And so um, you know, just just writing it off as a pathology or like not evidence based, I think would be a really great insult to to who they are, who they are as people, and uh, and doesn't build trust definitely. Um, or is also thinking uh, within Latinx communities in particular, like their 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 famously strong connections to their family, and like you talked about, their their extended family, friends, and everything, uh, and and I can imagine that uh, coming up against like like a like a Western highly individualist mindset. I mean, we might instinctively say, "Oh, are they like you know not well differentiated? Are they codependent or something?" And use all of these kind of pathologizing big terms that are just kind of poorly misunderstood anyway, um, as opposed to being able to recognize, hey, no, actually, they, they, this is this is health for them, and this, there's actually something really healthy about that. Uh, yeah, I think that that's really important. I really love, I, I, I mean, I just think that the, the Latinx communities have so much to offer us in terms of what they show in taking a full-body approach to themselves, taking a really interconnected approach with them and their families and with all of nature and the material and the spiritual world. And they, it seems like, from what I'm hearing from you, there, there's this very you know, integrated, fluid sense of themselves and, and the world around them. And uh, that, that's very much a source of strength. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, us, us uh, Western white people who you know kind of get locked away in our own like silos of individuality, uh, I think we might have some some really important things to learn from uh, from our Latinx uh, community people. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's I think that's true. I think you know being a good ally, being a good provider, being uh, developing and cultivating trust and healthy relationships and modeling is something really, really important, right? We, we model, we model in, in a very effective and it can be very effective if we do it appropriately. And our, our clients, they see this, they see this, you know, for, if we're modeling self-care, it's important for us to walk that walk as well. As a provider, it could be also very daunting for us to, when we're working with clients and we're thinking, what, what do I do? How do I best provide support? How do I take care of them? We also got to be reminded we need to take care of uh, ourselves and we need to be, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually well prepared and balanced in order to provide the best care. Because when we work with a population that is dealing specifically and is being attacked by racial disparities, whether it's race, whether it's housing, whether it's employment, whether it's ageism, whether it's access to uh, community resources, this is a really big deal. And this could be something that brings you home and, and, and drains you emotionally and physically in so many other ways. So if you're working with this population, you're working with a, a population of color, uh, our community, take care of yourself is very important. Take care of yourself. Uh, get yourself some good books, but also make time to speak to somebody who's working in the field because the best thing that we can do is be informed be informed and getting the information correctly and being able to put that information out. 
but also giving ourselves grace and time, right? Rome wasn't built in one day, so give yourself time to learn. Give yourself time to, to develop and sharpen your skills. And, and this is something that's going to be very important. I think this will be more this, – this, this approach will be taken more product, productively, receptively, and acknowledged by the population than just making flat-out mistakes or being ignorant about how we're approaching certain matters. I think that's a really good point. One, uh, one other, maybe kind of more, more funsy question, but for, for providers who are not native Spanish speakers who are interested in providing services in Spanish, um, how good would you say our Spanish should be before we uh, endeavor to offer, offer services here? Yeah, I think that this is, for anybody who's taken this challenge, thank you, and I applaud you, because it's not easy learning a, a, a foreign language, and it's not easy putting that into practice um, especially with the, you know, our psychology and psychodynamics and everything else. But things that could be very helpful is practice your Spanish with, with friends, colleagues. Make an effort to have long conversations in Spanish. Uh, listening to music in Spanish is helpful. Finding some educational resources is, would, be, would be great. Uh, following specific information like uh, the National Alliance of Mental Illness that specifically uh, identifies Hispanic information and, and gives you tools on identifying specific talking points. This is really important, but practice, practice, practice is key. This is one of the, the go-tos, right? If you want to, if you're going to be uh, providing culturally sensitive and services, uh, we need to understand the culture. We need to understand the language and how we're using the language because things could be mis mis misinterpreted wrongly and it can have a greater effect if we're not doing it appropriately. Absolutely. Uh, and again, no, uh, we, we, no, no, no assumptions about uh, what's going on. And um, little details make a, big dif- make a big difference. Cesar, thank you so much for sharing some thoughts and some resources and some, some good challenges for us. Uh, if a listener wanted to get a hold of you after this, what's the place where they can find you in the world or on the webs? Yes, thank you. Uh, my my name is Cesar, last name is Ramirez, and you could find me at well my personal email. It's uh, Cesar C E S A R uh, Ramirez R A M I R E Z zero one at gmail dot com. You could reach me there or at uh, I work at Central City Concern Puentes Program. I'm the clinical supervisor there for the Latinx population. You could also reach me there if you have any referrals or you have anybody who would want to know more about our services um, that information could also be provided uh, to you all uh, the the number there directly for for the address at our site let's start there it's one two six seven two southeast Stark street and that's in portland oregon nine seven two three three and uh, our fax number is five zero three five four six nine nine seven six and uh my direct cell phone number uh, to reach me at is 503-724-3777. Excellent. Well, there you have it, folks. That is how you can find Cesar. And y'all should look him up because he's great. <laughs> and, uh, thank you. Thank you again for, for being here and for sharing some perspectives with us. And, yeah, I'd encourage the listener to you know, think about these things, take up the challenge practice your Spanish and uh, yeah let's uh, let's keep the conversation going thank you so much Reese. I appreciate your time absolutely
love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music